Turn with me to the book of Judges in the Old Testament, because today we want to have a look at Judges chapter 3. book of Judges is, uh, I think, the seventh book on from the front of the Bible. Judges chapter 3, and we're looking today at verses 12 through to 30, the story of Ehud. Verse 12, once again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerar the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way way, the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret for you, O king. The king said, quiet, and all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out of his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, He must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, 
they followed, sorry, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Please keep your Bibles open there. Back in 2019, in London's Borough Market, visitors were confronted with 1,500 pieces of plastic waste which were hanging from the ceiling. It was, of course, modern art made by a man called Michael Murphy. Now, you could have looked at that and thought to yourself, modern art, you know, I don't get it. It's a waste of time. Why don't they hang up a proper picture uh, and get a real artist to come and do some real things there? And you could have walked away and missed it. But you would have been wrong. Because if you went round the other side and viewed the plastic from the other side, amazingly, it transformed into the face of a woman. And not just any woman, but this woman, a lady by the name of Dolly Rahina, who is a waste picker in India. And uh, she makes her living on the rubbish dumps, collecting bits of rubbish. And this was sponsored by Body Shop, uh, the shop, the cosmetics shop, uh, in a, a, an attempt to make uh, a public uh, announcement about their desire to use recycled plastic uh, for the bottling of their products. And the whole 3D sculpture was uh, resembling a person. That's amazing, isn't it? You know, you look at it one way, just rubbish. You turn around and see it from the other way, you see a face. And uh, something beautiful is there. Well, we have a similar experience to that with the scriptures, with the Bible, and especially the Old Testament. You know, lots of people look at the Old Testament and they read this and they think, oh, what's the use of this? Why is this? Why have we got this? What's the point of that? And it seems to be a disorganized uh, sort of collection of strange stories. But if you study it right, you realize it's not just a series of stories, but it's actually history, spiritual history. And it's a prophetic history about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll see a face in this story. You'll see the face of the Lord Jesus in the pages of scripture. And that's what we call typology. A type is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth. And this was something the Lord Jesus and the apostles did in their own teaching. When the Lord Jesus taught us about the resurrection, he said it would be just as it was with Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, that was a story from the Old Testament he used to illustrate a New Testament truth and many other illustrations of that. Paul did the same thing in his letters uh, when he talked about things like ministers being paid uh, for their work. And I've been paid, so don't worry, it's not a dig. Uh, but he said, it's, you know, like the scriptures in the Old Testament say, you know, you don't tread, uh, muzzle the ox when it's treading out the grain. But he says, is it oxen God's worried about? He said, no, it's for the ministers of God to be paid. Or are they doing the work of God? So they show us that the Old Testament is there to teach us New Testament truths. And we see it spiritually in that way. And uh, as Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. 
And that's what we see in the story of Ehud. We see a judge from the period before the monarchy of Israel, before King David came and the monarchy was established, when they had judges to rule over them instead of uh, leaders. This is the gap between Moses and Joshua and then the kingdom that's going to be established under David. And in that period of time, you had a number of judges. But, you know, the word judge is an interesting word. And if you look in verse 15, it says, Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud. And they're called deliverers. And if you look in some translations of the Bible, some of the old translations, it actually says he gave them a saviour. A saviour. We see the same thing in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 27. It says, so you handed them, this is Nehemiah's prayer, so you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you from heaven. You heard them and in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. These judges are saviours, they're deliverers, saviours on a local level, but they give us a picture, a face of the Lord Jesus Christ, the saviour who is to come. A.M. Hodgkin, who wrote a book called Christ in All the Scriptures, said this, In these deliverers or saviours of Israel, we can see a foreshadowing of the great deliverer who was to come. And that's exactly true. And that's why this morning I'd like us to look at this story of Ehud and see how Ehud himself is a picture, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ in his great work of salvation. And I want us to see it in three simple ways as this story, uh, we go through the story. We see it in his appearing, we see it in his victory, and we see it in his return. In these three ways, he is uh, a beautiful type of Christ. So first of all then, in his appearing in verses 12 to 15. And uh, we see that Ehud was sent or given by God at a time of great bondage. This is actually the second time in the story of the judges where Israel has gone astray. If you look back in verse 12, it says, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon king of Moab, power over Israel. And uh, this is the second time that this has happened. It happened in the, in the days beforehand, and God raised up another judge by the name of Othniel, who delivered them from the king of Aram because they had gone astray. And this is the cycle you get in the book of Judges. Israel keeps going back into sin, and then they get into bondage, and God raises up a deliverer when they cry out to him to, for, for rescue. And uh, this was the Lord's doing, that they had been brought into this bondage. And it's because they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's emphasized twice in that verse. And this was because of their sin of idolatry and wickedness. God gave them over to judgment. And the king that they came under judgment from was a king by the name of Eglon. Now, I'm going to be talking about him quite a lot. He's an interesting character. And Eglon, whose name means calf or heifer, a calf. He's a a big, fat, portly king. And uh, he's the king of Moab. And God strengthened his hand over Israel. And he joined forces with two other neighboring nations on the other side of the Jordan River, the Amalekites and the Ammonites. 
And uh, if I show you a map, you'll see uh, where he was. He's down here. This is the part of the, the, uh, of the Jordan where Moab is, and the Amalekites uh, are lower down, and the Ammonites are just there above. So basically, the nations on the other side of the River Jordan joined with him to become a super force, three nations joining together under his leadership. And it says in verse 13 that he came over to attack Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms. Now, what is the city of Palms? The city of Palms is Jericho. Remember uh, Palm Sunday and they, they went on Palm Sunday when Jesus came up from Jer- Jericho to Jerusalem and they waved palms. Where did they get those palms from? Those people got them from Jericho as they passed on their way. And uh, this is uh, how they, they, they honoured the Lord on that day. But it's the city of Palms. It's a very, very hot, humid place, very low, the lowest point on the earth's surface. And uh, it's a, a very key and a very powerful place. And so he brought his forces across. So if you see it on a, a 3D map, you can see they come down from the, the hills where Moab and, and Edom and Amalek are, Amonar, and they come down into the plains across the River Jordan, and they come then. The first city you come to is Jericho, uh, which is the major city uh, in that region. And uh, we read here that they took possession of the city of Palms. Now, that was a bad thing for Israel, because, you see, that had been the first city they had conquered when they'd come into the land. You remember when Joshua uh, was leading the children of Israel after Moses handed over, they conquered uh, Jericho first of all. And it was the first sign of victory that God had given them. But now they've lost it back to their enemies. And just as it was a key city for for the Israelites to take because it was the gateway to the rest of the land. This was also the gateway for their enemies now to the rest of the land. So this is a very serious situation that these three kings have come under the leadership of Moab and uh, King Eglon has set up his base there in Jericho. It means there's a great threat for the whole of the land now to be conquered and subdued. And they are under tribute to this king already. But if he wanted, he could push his troops right in to the heart of the country now. And it says in verse 14, the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. That's a long time to be in bondage. And uh, it, it meant that the children of Israel were paying tribute from all the fruit they grew, all the crops they grew, the, the, the lambs they, they, they shepherded and so on. They were giving a large percentage of this to the king of Moab, not to attack them and do them more harm. Eighteen years. Eighteen in the Bible is the number of bondage. You remember the lady in Luke 13 who had a withered, had a crippled back who came into the synagogue and Jesus healed her. We're told that Jesus said that Satan had bound her for 18 long years. What a long time that is, isn't it, when you're in pain with a bad back like that. And uh, 18 in the Bible is a number associated with this bondage, and especially bondage to Satan. Uh, 18 is 6, add 6, add 6, the 666 number. And uh, it's, it, it's symbolic of who's behind this great bondage. 
And this was a time of heaviness and trouble for the children of Israel. But look what happened in verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud. When they were in bondage, they cried out to God. The Hebrew word for cried out is the word, uh, is the word zak, Z-A-A-Q, if you wanted to spell it in English. And it means to cry out in anguish, to cry out in desperation. And they cried out to God, oh God, save us. We've done wrong, we've been wrong. We cry out to you to save us. And God heard their pry- prayer and he gave them a saviour. He gave them a deliverer, Ehud. And we're told about Ehud that he was a left-handed man, the son of Gerar, the Benjamite. Now, it's very interesting. He's the only judge who comes from the tribe of Benjamin, which is one of the subdivisions of the, uh, of the people of Israel. They have uh, 12 family tribes. And he's the only judge who comes from the tribe of Benjamin. But the fascinating thing is Benjamin, the name Benjamin means the son of my right hand. That's what the name means. But he is a left-handed man. So there's a a little twist here. And actually in chapter 20 we read all the Benjamites were left-handed by training uh, in in battle. And this is going to play into the story later on when he draws his sword from the wrong side, which they wouldn't have checked uh, when he goes in to see the king. But he's a left-handed man from the son of Benjamin. He's a a non-conformist. He doesn't do things the normal way. But God raised him up and gave him, and I love that phrase, gave him to the people of Israel as a deliverer. And this is how he appeared on the scene. And what a picture it is of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, mankind has also been put into bondage because of sin, because of our wickedness and what we did wrong. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God's judgment fell on the whole human race. And according to the book of Romans, now the whole of creation groans in bondage. The whole world is in bondage under, God, under God's judgment because of man's sin. And God sent us gave us, let me use the right phrase, gave us a saviour, like he gave Ehud. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God gave his son, the Lord Jesus, to be a saviour. And so his appearing is in the same fashion as Ehud, when the people cried out, uh, he, he came and rescued them. Now, you might say to yourself, well, hang on a minute. You know, you say the timing of that, you know, I would have said, you know, the time to send a deliverer was right back in year one, never mind year 18. Maybe you and I would have done, but God is wiser. Because you know what happens? Humans are very good at thinking they've solved the problem themselves. And so God brought them to the extremity where they knew they had no other hope but God. And this is the same with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did God wait 4,000 years after Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden to send the Lord Jesus Christ? Why, why didn't he come straight away? Well, the Bible tells us in Galatians 4 verse 4 that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. It was in the fullness, in God's perfect time. Because by that time, we had figured out we can't save ourselves 
We had the law of Moses. God gave us all the laws we could ever want, and we couldn't keep them. <laughs> couldn't keep them. We knew there's no hope. And the only way we were going to be rescued was if God came and rescued us. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He came from heaven and he came to be our rescuer. I wonder if you know this is true of, uh, of the human race. And I wonder if you know it's true of yourself as well. That you need a savior. You need a savior. You know, I've preached the gospel long enough to know that there's going to be people in this room who are going to be thinking, well, I'm all right. I'm not that bad. I haven't really done many things wrong. I've only done little things, not big bad things. But let me tell you something. God cares about those little sins as much as the big ones. And in some ways, the little ones are even more damnable than the big ones. The big ones... We can all see, but the little ones we tend to gloss over, but God doesn't gloss over them. Little sins had little temptation. should have been easy to resist, but you didn't. Therefore, you're all the more culpable before a holy God for the things that you have done wrong. And that's why you need to be saved. George Duncan, a famous preacher of this country many years ago, said this, The gospel doesn't say that men need just to be helped or they need to be advised or strengthened or guided, it says they need to be saved. And I say amen. We need to be saved. And so God sent us a saviour, a deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the same way that he sent Ehud to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And what you and I must do is put our trust in that saviour to rescue us from our sin. We'll talk about that more as we go along. Second thing I want you to see is his victory. Because in verses 14 through to 25, we see Ehud's victory over Eglon. You know, General Douglas MacArthur, uh, coming back from Korea, said, In war there is no substitute for victory. <laughs> and he's right, there's no prize for second, <laughs> second place, is there? You know, there is a grave in America, uh, which is got written on it, Here lies the second fastest drawer in the West. <laughs> you think about it, he got the second prize, which was a bullet. There's no prize for being second best. You have to have victory. And Ehud had victory over Moab and over, uh, over uh, uh, Eglon, the king of Moab. And it was M-O-A-B, the mother of all battles. It was a, a personal battle that won the victory and then led to the national victory following. And what we see happening is that Ehud uh, is sent in verse uh, 15... Uh, with a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. The word tribute there in Hebrew is the word korban, which is an interesting word because it's the word actually used for a gift for God. And there's uh, something fascinating woven into this story, which I won't probably go into today, but there's a sort of priestly overtone uh, in this story, which is uh, fascinating. But he brings a, a tribute to uh, Eglon, the king of Moab, on behalf of the nation of Israel. And he comes with others, but he comes prepared because we read in verse 16 that he had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. 
Now, he made this sword, a double-edged sword. In Hebrew, there's only one word for sword or dagger, but they know from archaeology that there's basically two things they made. They made swords that were uh, longer, and they made swords that were shorter. Uh, and this would be one of the shorter-length ones. About a cubit is the word that's used there, although it's not the regular word for a cubit in Hebrew. Uh, but it's about a cubit, which is the size from a fist down to your elbow, something about that sort of long. And he strapped it to the right side of his thigh. Now, this was very cunning because when most people hand the sword, they held this sword in their right hand. But of course, being left-handed, he could draw from his other side. So when they frisked him and checked him for weapons on the way in, they wouldn't have found uh, a weapon if they hadn't been you know, just casual, just checking his right side. And he took that risk and it paid off. So he, he strapped his double-edged sword to his side and that he had made and went on his way. <clears throat> and it says in verse 17, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Uh, now, this is uh, 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 very interesting, as we, we're going to see in a minute. But uh, there's... Uh, uh, with, with this fat man, remember his name means calf. So what you have is a fattened calf. In Hebrew. Can you see the picture now? It's a fattened calf ready for the slaughter. This is what the Hebrew is saying. And this man is a very fat man, uh, a, a, an obese man, perhaps a little bit like Henry VIII, who was very fat. And towards the end of his life, he had to be carried around on a velvet and gold chair. Uh, because he was so obese. Uh, but he was uh, a, a huge man. In verse 18, it said, After Ehud presented the tribute, he sent on their, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. So they'd left uh, already with, after presenting the tribute, and they'd won the favor of the king, and he'd, he'd sent the other men went on. And then in verse 19, At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back. And said, I have a secret message for you, O king. So he comes to the idols near Gilgal. Now, we don't know exactly what these idols are, but we think that what the king has done is he's picked the river, the stones. You remember Joshua put those stones in the river to mark where they crossed uh, on dry land. We think what had happened was they'd taken those stones out of the river and then they'd carved on them the name Eglon and positioned them around uh, the edge of uh, uh, Jericho. I couldn't think of the name. Uh, Jericho, as if to say, this is the beginning of my kingdom in this area. Uh, so he turns around at that point and goes back to the king and makes a declaration. I have a secret message for you. In other words, I've got intelligence, something that you need to know. And so the king quickly sends out his attendants, says, be quiet. He doesn't even trust his closest aides. Uh, he doesn't want anybody else to know what this secret intelligence is. And at this point, Ehud has just said it's a secret message. But when they've gone out, Ehud then approaches him while he's sitting alone in the upper room in his summer palace. You see, this is like the inner court in, in the temple. That's why I say it's got a priestly overtone. And he said, I have a message from God for you. 
The word God there is the word Elohim, which is God general, the creator, uh, as opposed to the Lord. And this was a message from his God, the God he was going to bow before, not the Lord, the covenant God, because he didn't know him that way. And he said, as the king rose from his seat, the king is proud. He thinks, oh, wonderful, God has given me a message and I'm going to receive something. Ehud reaches with his left hand, draws the sword from his right thigh and plunges it into the king's belly. It's a really gross story that children love. Uh, you know, even the hand sank in, handle sank in after the blade, which came out the back. And uh, Ehud didn't pull the sword out. And he falls over and he's flat on the floor in front uh, of his throne. And uh, this was how Ehud got the victory over the king. Like killing uh, the, uh, the head of, or stamping on the head of the snake, he got victory. I knew a guy in Reading who was, uh, I, he, he used to do the repairs on guitars for all the guys in bands. That's how we knew him. His name, I, I better not say his name, might, uh, someone might hear and pass it on. But uh, he, uh, he was a, a, an ex-military man. And one night he was walking home from the pub and he got surrounded by a gang of blokes who wanted to mug him for his money. They saw he had some cash. And he just said to them, right, which one of you is the leader? And they all pointed to one guy. He said, right, I take you on. And he took this guy on, beat the living daylights out of him, and all the others ran. And this was the mentality of Ehud. Strike the head and you'll defeat the nation. So he, he attacked their leader. And uh, then, like James Bond, you know, he, he retreats out of, out of the porch, locks the door behind him, retreats out the porch uh, on, on the top and uh, gets away. Now, the servants come along and the servants can't get in the room and they assume that he's using the bathroom to be polite. Um, uh, and so they, they don't come in. And they wait and they wait and they wait. And they get embarrassed with waiting and think that we ought to go in, otherwise he's going to be cross that we haven't cared for his needs. And so they get the key. Now, this is not a Roman key, the metal key of turning, but it was, it's more like a big wooden shaft that they use to pull down levers to unlock the door. And they come in and it's, it says, there they saw their, king, their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. And uh, it's like the story of, of um, the Ark of the Covenant brought into the Temple of Dagon. And there's Dagon, dead, flat on the floor. There is their Lord, flat on the floor, dead before them. And this was how Ehud got the personal victory that led to Israel's deliverance. Now, I want to tell you, dear friends, this is like the Lord Jesus Christ. Because... When we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ's victory that set us free, it wasn't a group affair. It wasn't Jesus and his disciples. It wasn't Jesus and Israel. It wasn't Jesus and the church. It was Christ alone who got the victory. And you know what happened? He did it on the cross, and it was secured behind closed doors. And everybody waited three days, waiting for the day when they went in the grave and they found he wasn't there. Do you see what I'm saying? He defeated the king of terrors, as he's called, death itself, when he died on the cross and rose again. And Jesus had a great and uh, a singular victory that could be, therefore, applied to us by faith. 
And Ehud's private victory behind those closed doors reminds us of Christ's great victory. I heard a story about a town that was terrorized by a bear. And uh, the bear kept coming down into the villages and kept uh, uh, killing the people. And the bear lived up in a cave. And one day a man showed up and said, I'll get rid of that bear for you. And all the people were very pleased and they watched the man go up. And he went into the cave. Now, when did they know they had victory? When did they know he had won? They heard terrible sounds inside that cave. And it all went quiet. They knew he had the victory when he came out. The bear was dead. And that's like the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came. He came and died on the cross for our sins. Paid the price for our deliverance. And 2 Timothy 1.10 says he abolished death. I love that. It's a phrase that's used, would be used in modern terms today for defusing a bomb. The bomb is still there, but it's been defused. It's been dealt with. And that's like death. Jesus has dealt with death through his death on the cross, defeated the king, and now he has provided victory for us. And he rose from the grave. So what an amazing thing Christ has done for us. You know, we perhaps don't uh, take this to heart uh, as much as we should do, but this is the good news of the gospel. And there's a a book by a man called Ben Patterson called uh, Deepening Your Conversations with God. And in that book, he tells the story of a missionary who went to a a jungle tribe. I think it was somewhere in Papua New Guinea where they'd they'd never heard about Christianity before. And uh, he told them the message and he translated the Bible and things like this for them. But the best thing that seemed to happen was when he made, he bought a video projector. And because they now were able to speak the language, he was able to uh, dub the video and they showed the Jesus film, which is a a portrayal of the life of Christ. And these people had never seen technology like this before, Uh, uh, never mind uh, uh, hearing the story. And they were amazed. They saw the story of the Lord Jesus' birth his coming, his growing up. They saw his, his perfect life, the, the, the miracles he did, the kindness he showed people, the great teaching he gave. And then they saw him put on trial and put on a cross. And this was when it really hit the people. And you know what? According to Ben Patterson in the book, when they saw Jesus put on the cross, all the tribes people came up to the projector man and they were angry at him because what had happened, and as if it was his fault, as if he'd done it, you know. And they were really angry. And he said, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. Sit down. The people were angry and they were agitated. And they saw the disciples all morning. And then three days later in the story, Christ appears. He said at that point the whole tribe just erupted and they were dancing and they were cheering all night, slapping each other on the back. They got the message like for the first time. Jesus had won the victory, conquered death and therefore all that they had heard about the gospel was true for them. You know, this is the victory Christ has and uh, Ehud's foreshadowing of it should help us to see how wonderful it is but then thirdly we move on from this and we see Ehud as a type of Christ in his return because we see in verse 26 while they waited Ehud got away he passed by the idols and escaped to Sirah when he arrived there he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim 
and Israel and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. So Ehud goes back and uh, he goes from down by the river Jordan, which is there, to the hill country of Ephraim. Now, this is the main central section. If you look at it uh, on a 3D map, it's, you're going uphill, and uh, it's, it's called in the Bible the hill country of Ephraim. And it, he went to a place called Sirah. Now, Sirah is probably not actually a literal name, probably. It's probably a descriptive term because it means like a thick wood. And we know from other places in the Bible in those days it was all hev- heavily forested. So strategically, if you're worried about uh, people following you, it's a good place to go to get lost in the woods so that uh, you're you're hidden at first. But not only that, um, it was a a very clever place to go because of Israel's history. You see, Joshua, the leader of Israel, who led them to victory initially, was buried at Ephraim. He was buried in the hills of Ephraim. And so he didn't go back to his own tribe of Benjamin. He went to Ephraim. And from that place, he blew the trumpet, the rallying call to Israel and said, come on, we're going down, back down, and we're going to get the victory. And he rallied Israel to him. And as we see there, they then went down with him, leading them from the hill. So they come down and they return back to Jericho. And he says, follow me in verse 28. He ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. I like the way he doesn't say, I've given you the victory. He says, the Lord has given you. And you know, in the Psalms, it says that God, the, the, right, the victory comes from the right hand of God. This left-handed man gave the credit to the right, the God who gives victory by his, his right arm being bared. And he, he says, the Lord has given you enemy, he's given you your enemy into your hands. And so they followed him down and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. Uh, it wasn't the, until the Romans came along that they uh, had a bridge across that river. And so people had to wade through the waters to get across, uh, unless, of course, God did a miracle by opening the Red Sea, which happened just at the, the Jordan, which happened a couple of times. So when they stopped at the fords and they put their troops there, they were stopping any more army soldiers coming across from the other side. They were holding back the army and they were getting rid of those who were already on their side of the Jordan. And at that time, we read in verse 29, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not a man escaped. And that day Moab was made subject to Israel. The roles were reversed and the land had peace for 80 years. So when Ehud returned, he came back with the army to press home the victory he had won. Now, can you see a picture of Christ in that? That's exactly what's going to happen in the future with our Lord Jesus Christ. He won the victory at the cross 2,000 years ago when he died and when he rose again. But he's coming back. And he's coming back from heaven, coming down with his armies from heaven as we read at the end of the book of Revelation. And he's going to press home his victory on this world. And the question for you and me is, are we ready? Are we ready for the coming of the Lord? I read a story years ago uh, about President Dwight Eisenhower, who was... uh, 
having a holiday, vacation, as they call it in America, in Denver. And there was a story in the newspaper at that time about a little boy who was very sick with cancer. This little boy wasn't going to live very long, but he'd heard from this story, and he'd been touched by this. Eisenhower was his hero, as he was for many boys at that stage uh, in history, uh, after the war and everything. And Eisenhower said to his, his aides, he said, let's go and see that little boy. Uh, he'd heard this boy, looked up to him, he said, let's go and see him. So he said, what we'll do is we'll get the whole entourage. They got the, the big black limo with the flags on and everything, all the security detail around them and everything. And they pulled up outside this little boy's house. And uh, this little boy, Paul Haley, was his name. Uh, the president's aide went up and knocked on the front door. And there was Paul's father standing there in a dirty T-shirt, He'd been working on his motorbike. Uh, he hadn't shaved. His hair, he hadn't brushed his hair or anything. And, uh, you know, he looked a right mess, probably in his sandals as a hippie as well. You know, and there's the president standing before him. And, and the president's man says, is Paul here? The president of the United States would like to see him. And the little boy pokes out from behind his father and says, can I go? And his dad says, yes, son, go. Uh, and he goes and the president takes him up in the car, takes him a drive around the car. and uh, The little boy's dream comes true. But you know what his dad said? I will never forget the day when I was caught off guard when the president of the United States came to my house and there I was dressed like this, unshaved and unready to meet such a great visitor. You know, what a little parallel for us with the return of Christ. Nobody knows the day or the hour the Lord Jesus is going to come. Are you ready for his coming? He's coming back. And we need to know Christ as our Savior and our Lord and be ready. I came across a little uh, verse in the CSSM chorus book just this week. It said this, get right with God and do it now. Get right with God, he tells you how. Oh, come to Christ who shed his blood and at the cross, get right with God. I thought, Lord, that's a message in itself. And that's my message here as I bring this story about Ehud to a close. And I've shown you how Ehud is a type of Christ. Is even more important is the real Christ who is here today to save sinners who will turn to him. So get right with God if you've not done so. Put your trust in him. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. We're not saved by our doing, we're saved by his dying. It's not by our trying, it's by trusting in him. It's not by what we achieve, it's by what we believe in, in him and rest our faith on him. So if you've not yet done so, come to him and put your faith, God put your sin on the son of God and have salvation as it's offered to you from God's deliverer, the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to sing our final hymn now this evening.